0: there are a lot of really important policy issues like, you know, life issues and abortion, um, very, very important issues. But the first thing we have to do is, I think, recognize what is truly actually at stake in this election. And this is not campaign season hyperbole. I'm I'm not a Democrat. I'm a conservative. I've been with the, on the Republican side of things my entire adult life until 2016. And, and I still, you know, hope to See a, a renewed Republican Party. Um, this is not a partisan fight for me. I genuinely believe that the Republic is at risk. We have to save the Republic first, so that we can go on and continue to fight for the other things we care about. Because if we lose the Republic, then we're going to be at the mercy of, of frankly, a, a, a wicked man who has little respect for for life, and so and and the in human decency. But but let me turn towards that. There is not a pro-life candidate in this in this race.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to this week in Mormons. I'm your host Jeff Openshaw, joined by my buddy Jared Gillins. It's wonderful to have you
2: here again, Jared. Thank you. As always, I'm I'm just always happy to be here.
1: Yeah, we got a great show this week. It's going to be a lot of fun. Very interesting. Because with the United States presidential election this week and the many months we've spent analyzing the outsized role Latter-day Saints are playing in the election this time around, we thought it would be nice to talk to previous podcast guest Evan McMullen, about his thoughts on the election, why he's supporting Joe Biden, and uh, why he thinks his fellow Latter-day Saints should do the same. What's at stake here? Now, you might remember Evan from his 2016 campaign for president and our interview with him during the early stages of that campaign. Evan ran four years ago as a conservative alternative to Donald Trump, and he garnered plenty of support, over 20% in Utah. But this election, he's not running. Instead, he's working as an executive director of Stand Up Republic, a national cross-partisan organization working to defend and strengthen American democracy. And we'll get into that during the interview. Evan has watched as many Latter-day Saints have fallen in line with President Trump, while others, including himself, have opted this time to vote for Joe Biden and, and push for that vote. So why is that? What would make a conservative vote for a Democrat? And which candidate is truly the moral candidate? Regardless of whom you vote for this week, assuming you are not among the millions already to have cast ballots, this week's episode is a candid discussion on the nature of democracy, on the fragility of the republic, and on, well, there's no point ignoring it, some of Utah Senator Mike Lee's more interesting comments of late, or perhaps you might describe them inappropriate. Either way. Those have been fun overtures toward Latter-day Saints. Prior to starting the interview, by the way, we discussed Evan's love of mountain climbing and realized that he and I have a mutual love for the YouTube channel Mediocre Amateur, which features some excellent mountaineering footage and is run by some Utahns. That's all. I just want to give them the twin bump. When we were talking, I said, oh, I wish I were recording this. This is good human interest stuff. Mediocre Amateur, it's a great channel. Go, Twin Nation. Give them the bump. Bump them. Bump them well. Now, of course... We hope you've subscribed to the show if you haven't done so already. And once again, I implore you to leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you're on Apple podcasts, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we welcome your thoughts over email, which we really do read and respond to. I promise that's contact at thisweekinmormons.com. Lastly, you know, we want that sweet Patreon money. Thanks to all of you who support us on Patreon. It means the world. Uh, $2 a month, for example, could let me buy some sweet new guitar pedals which I will then use to record fabulous and esoteric original compositions available only to you, the patrons. Obviously, you want this in your life, so consider it. Uh, It also helps us pay hosting fees and other things along those lines. Anyway, let's get into it. And here we are back on the podcast for the first time in about four years. Evan McMullen, how are you doing? Great to have you here.
0: Great to be with you, Jeff.
1: It's really nice. Uh, So um, we had you on four years ago when you were running for president. And I suppose if, if we have some listeners who might not be familiar with you, maybe you should explain yourself, if you wouldn't mind. Maybe introduce yourself to our listeners and explain to them why we might be interested in talking to you once and twice.
0: Well, sure. Well, thanks, thanks a lot for having me on again. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's a pleasure, I, I guess, to explain myself. Uh, I, I'm a member of the church, you know, born in Utah, uh, raised in Washington, Washington State. I live in Utah now. Um, I was a former CIA officer for about 11 years, working uh, most of that time undercover overseas in, in the war on terror, uh, spent a lot of time in the Middle East and, and North Africa and Asia. Uh, then I went on to, making a long story short, ended up uh, working in Congress where I was a national security advisor there and, and then became the chief policy director for the House Republicans. Uh, during the 2015 and 2016 uh, election cycle. I then left there in August uh, to launch uh, a short emergency presidential run. Um, I I like that uh,
1: phrasing, an emergency (laughs) presidential run. Yes,
0: exactly. So, you know, I was very opposed to, to President Trump. I had hoped that anyone else on the Republican side would win the nomination and that Um, that, you know, I would be able to support that candidate, but, uh, unfortunately, in in my view, President Trump won the nomination and I thought he was a very dangerous person for a lot of reasons and unfit for the role. And I was fearful, genuinely fearful for what he might do to the Republic. And so I tried to recruit someone else to to run as a conservative independent against him in the general election. and you know many others were trying to do that. Unfortunately, that failed and and when it did, uh, I decided that if literally no one else was going to do that, then I would do it myself. and And the reason why I did it, despite the the very, very, very long odds and despite you know, not having a, a public profile, having no name identification, not having a team or any of the resources that one needs to launch a campaign. I did not have any of those, but I felt strongly that someone from the conservative and from the Republican side of the aisle had to stand up and defend basic American fundamental principles, uh, and I'm I'm talking about um, our our liberty and our inherent equality under the law and, and our system of self-government, which I thought was at, 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 um, at risk. Uh, so, so that's what I did. And, um, you know, electorally, obviously the odds were long and, you know, we, uh, ended up in just three short months with, with very, uh, modest resources. Uh, we ended up, uh, with the best, uh, non-major party candidate performance, uh, of any presidential candidate since Ross Perot in, in Utah winning 21 and a half percent of the vote, and uh, you know we we won small majorities or minorities elsewhere around the country in that in that uh, short period of time. But uh, obviously, President Trump prevailed, and uh, after that, uh, we decided my running mate and I decided to form an organization called Stand Up Republic, and the point of that organization was to unite Americans from across the political spectrum around uh, fundamental American values and around the defense of the Republic. And we've worked over the last four years to do that. So we've built this incredible organization that has members in all congressional districts and all 50 States. And most of our members are, are principled or former Republicans or right-leaning independents. Uh, although we do have, uh, you know, a third or so of, uh, of the organization is, is Democratic. And, and so we're, we're proud of our cross-partisan uh, membership and the coalition that we've built. And we've used that coalition over the last several years to advance uh, reforms to, to our republic. Uh, we've used it to defeat uh, uh, figures running for office who we believe would be destructive. To the Republic, and we've worked to continue to build unity around American values, which you know to some may seem quaint, um, but in a in a time of such great division in our country, um, we've believed that our values can can unite people across the political spectrum, and we've found that to be true. So, looking forward, you know that's you know we'll perhaps get into that, but that's the work that we plan to continue doing in the years to come.
2: So I'm I'm curious, Evan. Can you talk a little bit more, kind of like nuts and bolts, like what it looks like on the ground? Like you talked about, for example, defeating certain candidates that you were trying to keep off the ballot. Like what does what does your organization actually do to help, you know, prevent a candidate from getting elected or getting on the ballot? Like, is the, are we talking ad campaigns? Are we talking about donations?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Jared. It's all it's all of that. So basically, the the way we approach anything we do. Is with the idea that if we can unite Republicans, independents, and Democrats in that effort, our chances of success grow. So, for example, take a Republican member of Congress, Steve King, who is an open white nationalist. He says things that are, you know, any reasonable person would consider racist. And in fact, he's so bad that Republican leadership in the House has kicked him off all of his committees, and they won't advance any of his bills, and they're just, they've been eager for him to go away for a long time. Well, in the midterms last, you know, in in 2018, we were the largest outside players against him. I think we spent more on that race than he spent on his own campaign. Um, But what we did is we unified donors, we brought together Republican, independent, and Democratic donors, and we um, we we ran polls in in the district to understand how people in the district uh, felt about Steve King. We talked to people in Iowa, in Iowa Iowans in his district, about uh, about uh, what they thought of him and and why they wanted to replace him. And then we crafted messages that that uh, reflected some of those views of of the Iowans we spoke to and of the polling we did. And then we targeted those messages uh, via the internet. We did micro-targeting via the internet of persuadable voters uh, in order to build a cross-partisan coalition, a cross-partisan majority of of voters in his district to oppose him. Now, in 2016, he had won by, I think, 23% or so, 23, 25%. Um, In 2018, in the midterms, the same election year in which we were engaged against him, uh, unfortunately, we did not prevail. We did not succeed at at removing him, but we dropped his margin of victory down to 3%, which to us was an excellent outcome. What what happened next in, in the next two years was that he stopped being able to raise money um, very credible Republican challengers announced that they would run against him in, in this cycle and in, 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 uh, in this election year. And, and so they did. So because we dropped his margin down in, in 2018, he was weakened. He was removed from his committees in Congress. He couldn't raise any money. Um, other, um, more, you know, traditional Republicans stepped up to challenge him. And then in this election season, although, uh, but not in the general, in the primary, uh, we again entered the race and supported, uh, an alternative, uh, Republican to Steve King. And thankfully he prevailed, uh, with our support and, you know, Steve King will soon be out of Congress, which will make the country better and the Republican party stronger And, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of work we do, but it's, it's building these cross-partisan coalitions to put country over party in elections and in advocating for reforms to our system of self-government to make it stronger. That's how we succeed.
2: Wow. That's fantastic. Thanks for describing that. And I I love the specific instance, because like you said, I think to any reasonable person, Thinking about Steve King and what he would say, and what you know, some of the quote-unquote ideals that he represented—it's an easy one for I think anyone to get behind. And, and, and it, I, to me, that's a clear win. Like you said, not just for the people of Iowa, but for the country. And it's a—it's refreshing too, like you said, to hear about an organization that is focused so much on building bridges across partisanship, um, because we are—it does feel very divided right now, and it's—it's. Um, it's, Heartening to hear about an organization that says, well, in spite of the divide, let's, let's see what we can do to work together for the country. Well,
0: thank you, Jared. I, I honestly believe that it, it, in, in response to the last four years, uh, you know, this is what we need to do. You know, our country is falling behind. We're not solving major challenges, major modern challenges facing the country, whether it's our exploding national debt uh, you know our healthcare system, uh, changing, you know climate, uh, information warfare—so many challenges that we're we're not we're not matching, we're not meeting. And the only way we're going to do it is if we start working together. The politics of division just have to end as soon as possible because they're they're not they're not serving anyone's interests. I, I think they well maybe there's an exception. I think. The politics of division often serve the interests of, of uh, our people in Washington, of congressmen, of you know divisive you know presidents and presidential candidates, but they don't serve the interests of the American people. So I hope as a, a sort of a, a pendulum swing response uh, to the last four years, I, I hope that we'll see a new culture of, uh, of bipartisanship or cross-partisanship. Working on unifying solutions that are based in truth and fact, uh, so that we can meet modern challenges for the American people. That that's what needs to happen, and and we hope that this work that we've done is is the beginning of, of something like that for the country.
2: Wonderful. Well, let's let's uh, stay on this theme of uh, divisiveness for a second. So, when I was trying to prepare for the interview, I, I, I uh, looked at the Stand Up Republic website and the the little mission statement that you have, which I think is great, says stand up Republic mobilizes a national cross-partisan constituency to defend and strengthen American democracy. And the first thing (laughs) I thought of when I read that statement, which I I think is great, uh, was the recent little diatribe uh, by Senator Lee uh, on Twitter, uh, when he was um, advocating against what he called rank democracy and promoting this idea of, you know, we are a Republic, not a democracy. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is there truly a divide between those terms? Is, is there value in hashing them out? Or is this more of a, you know, more of the same kind of what, what we're seeing as far as like a way to divide one side from another? I, wh- why did you choose that term American democracy when there's so many people, especially on the conservative side of things, that love to tout this idea that, well, well no, it's not a democracy, it's a republic.
0: Yeah, well, I'm so glad you asked that question, Jared, because it's it's an important one to discuss. I mean, we named the organization Stand Up Republic, right? Because yes, we are a republic; we have a representative government. That's that's true. Um, but we also use the word democracy because, uh, in some definitions of that word, it you know it it also describes our our system of of self government. Uh, look, I think when most people say republic or democracy, I think they're talking about the same thing, which is government that's accountable to the people. They're, they're describing our system of self-government. You know, Some people, I think, like to play a semantic game for partisan purposes. Frankly, I think Senator Lee engages in that far too often. Um, no one in America, very few people in America are advocating for what he calls ranked democracy, which is another way of saying direct democracy you know where we get rid of our representatives and we just we all just vote on things perhaps through some technological means and we don't we have no representatives um i don't think that would be a good idea i don't really hear anyone advocating for that maybe on the fringes somewhere that's that's the case but no one really is advocating for that so it's sort of a silly thing to say it's it's certainly not fair to say to people who use the word democracy, it's not fair to say to them, oh, you mean direct democracy? Because that's not what people are talking about. Uh, I, I think too often these words become partisan tools, where you know Democrats prefer the word democracy, Republicans use prefer the word republic, and and we sort of engage in this silly battle when we actually agree we have a government, we have a self. A governing system. And our government should be accountable to us. Our, our representatives should be accountable to us. We all agree on that. So let's build on that common ground rather than to create false divisions that only hurt us, only hurt everyone. And, and then I would say, especially to, to people like Senator Lee, who engage in, in that kind of divisive semantic game, uh, let's ask the deeper question. You know, What are you doing to help protect our republic, if that's your preferred word? Are you standing up to a president who's seeking to dismantle uh, most of the checks or all of the checks on his power? Are you standing up for truth? Uh, are you trying to uh, build on common ground to protect our country from, from threats, whether they be you know, political or, or foreign or, or whatever? Are you, you know, what are you doing to strengthen the republic? Uh, or is it just that you're interested in having, a, you know, a semantic, a divisive semantic uh, partisan battle that only weakens our republic? So that, I think, is the deeper the deeper question.
1: So there's so much here. So obviously you ran four years ago. Would you consider running again this this cycle around in 2020 was that ever a thought or was your focus on stand up republican that's where you feel that your energies are best spent
0: Well i i didn't make a decision finally until you know late i mean i i wasn't sure how the republican and the democratic primaries would play out uh, in 2016, we had two major party candidates who were perceived to be very divisive by the opposing party. And, uh, and I was hoping that that wouldn't be the case in 2020. I was hoping that the Democrats would nominate someone who was a unifying leader, you know, a Democrat, so not, you know, a preferred, you know, candidate for someone who comes from the Republican side of the aisle, but but at least a unifying, uh, a unifying leader. And it was unclear for a while whether the Democrats were going to do that or nominate some, someone, a divisive candidate of their own, say, you know, Bernie Sanders, for example. Um, But that's not what happened. The Democrats had their, had another opportunity to nominate Bernie Sanders and instead they nominated Joe Biden and Joe Biden ran a primary campaign that was, uh, you know, explicitly, Working to unite Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, and so and that's something that I urged. You know, we actually engaged in the Democratic primary, um, moving uh, rep- principled Republicans and conservatives into the Democratic primary and in states with with open primaries, uh, in order to ensure that Joe Biden won the primary and sure enough, he did, and we were uh, encouraged by that outcome. The Democrats could have nominated someone else, but they didn't, and so I thought it was important this year, given that the Democrats had nominated a unifying candidate, and the threat that Donald Trump poses to the country after four years of of his presidency uh, was clear, and because of those two things, I thought it best to, to continue to help build this cross-partisan coalition, just as we had in these other races, but to ensure that we were able to defeat President Trump and move forward as a country and hopefully see a renewed Republican Party recommitted to uh, American values.
1: So I think for, let's talk about members of the church. I mean, I mean, these arguments are sound on paper. You think if if you're uncomfortable with Donald Trump, and many are, you can vote for Joe Biden. He's a stand-up guy. He's not perfect. He's not necessarily the Republican you might be looking for. Um, but especially within the Christian world for Latter-day Saints, I've seen this is more anecdotal, but many who, strictly speaking, about Biden, cannot vote for Joe Biden because of his stance on abortion, uh, for example. Like they would rather endure Trump's character flaws and his administrative flaws and everything that comes with it. If it means, you know, conservative justices potentially overturning Roe and all that, and I've seen this to be like one major wedge issue that could prevent a lot of people from coming over uh, to decide that you're advocating in this election. So, like, what do you say to that? What do you say to members of our church who feel that way?
0: Well, first of all, I would say that I understand. I mean, I'm I consider myself to be pro-life as well. I am pro-life, always have been, and you know, that's I understand that concern, but. Uh, but i have some things to, to say about it uh, of course and the first thing i would say is that i truly believe that our country is at a crossroads it's just as elder ballard said in in the last conference and he he said that very clearly and we're not the only country by the way as he said there are other countries facing similar challenges the world actually is at a crossroads on a lot of different issues but but also politically, he listed a number of things. I think he listed the environment, you know, society, you know, our politics, all of that. We are at a crossroads. And, and I believe that's true in this election. And, and I know that there may, may be people out there, some of your listeners who uh, maybe don't see this or struggle to, to sort of get their head around what I'm talking about. Um, but what I think is at stake in this election is the republic. It is a, a government uh, of the people. That is what's at stake. The president seeks, himself, seeks to hold himself above the law, above any check or balance. He has been very successful holding himself above the check of Congress and above the law. He's attacked the free press. Regardless of what you think about the press, we need the free press in order to protect our liberty. We have to have it even if there's bias in there, which I think there often is, but of course, but we still need the free press. He's attacked the free press. He's attacked law enforcement. He's attacked, uh, any members of Congress who do their jobs to protect the constitution on either side of the aisle. And this is what is, what he's trying to do is destroy our system of self-government. He's trying to hold himself above the law and above accountability to the American people. That's why he seeks foreign interference on his behalf. That's why he casts doubt on the outcome of the election before it even begins. I mean, this is this is what he's trying to do. And it, we're not the first country to face that. So w- there are a lot of really important policy issues like you know life issues and abortion, um, very very important issues. But the first thing we have to do is, I think, recognize what is truly, actually at stake in this election, and this is not campaign season hyperbole. I'm I'm not a Democrat. I'm a conservative. I've been with on the Republican side of things my entire adult life until 2016, and and I still, you know, hope to see a a renewed Republican Party. Um, This is not a partisan fight for me. I genuinely believe that the Republic is at risk. We have to save the Republic. First, so that we can go on and continue to fight for the other things we care about, because if we lose the republic, then we're going to be at the mercy of, of frankly, a, a wicked man who has little respect for for life, and so and and the in human decency. But but let me turn towards that. There is not a pro life candidate in this in this race. There simply isn't. Of course, Joe Biden is pro choice. He's a Catholic and he's pro-choice. Donald Trump cannot be described as pro-life. Yes, I understand that he appoints conservative justices. I too am an originalist. I want to see originalist justices on the Supreme Court. Um, so he's he's been making those appointments. Pe- many people who are pro-life appreciate that, of course. But in order to be truly pro-life, you can't separate children from their mothers at the border when, they, when immigrants come to the border. You can't do that. but who you built the cages, Joe? Who built the cages? Right yeah, right, exactly. So you know you can't put them in cages too. I know that you know they, they fight over who, who built the cages. But yeah. you, you, you can't have you know, a, a stated immigration policy that seeks to deter new immigrants from coming to the border by frightening them, by doing something completely inhumane to them, like literally taking infants away from mothers. I mean, I can't think of something more. I mean, I can, I guess there, there are things that are perhaps even more evil than that, but that is abject evil. We just, that is not pro-life. It is not pro-life to advocate for torture. It is not pro-life to uh, inspire a resurgence in, in the white supremacist movement in the United States and to cater to them. It is not pro-life to speak about, to brag about uh, sexually assaulting women and to treat women with disrespect. And I could go on and on. These things are not pro-life in any way, shape, or form. And so there isn't a pro-life candidate in this election. And if we're if someone is concerned about the strength of the pro life <clears throat> excuse me movement then the last thing you want to do is have donald trump be your standard bearer now the last thing i'll say about this is you know unless you have other other questions about it is that the facts are that abortion rates in the united states have been going down for the last uh, handful of decades and they've even gone down more and i say this as a conservative but look the facts are the facts they've even gone down more the abortion rate has gone down more even during Democratic presidencies. And so that's, that's the reality. The, the abortion rate in America is going down, whether we have a Republican or a Democrat in office. So, you know, the, the president has just nominated three conservative justices to the court. Um, I don't believe that given those statistics about a declining abortion rate in the United States and these most recent appointments to the Supreme Court, I do not believe that the the views on abortion of the next president are really going to have much impact on that issue over the next four years. But I'll tell you, to the extent that they are, I think that it is time on on issues like this, issues of, of, of grand importance that have divided us for so long, it's time to take a new approach where we work to find common ground. We can't let these issues continue to divide us the way they are. Most people, whether they're pro-choice or pro-life, would like to see less abortions. No one's out there campaigning for more abortions. That is important and critical common ground. We can build on that common ground. If we all agree that we would like to see less abortions, let's figure out how we can work together to achieve that. I think that's been happening to some degree, but it needs to happen to a greater degree. We need to take a new approach to that and other divisive issues.
2: So, okay, coming, I want to come. I I, I appreciate everything that you've said just now. I want to co- rewind a little bit and kind of where you started uh, with this latest uh, response to, to Jeff's question. The, this idea of the country being at risk, being at a crossroads, and talking about how you know, you, in your view, uh, President Trump is one of the catalysts. I, mean, I mean, that's not the word you used, but you know that he's at at the center of this. And I, from what I have heard from talking with conservative friends and family members, um, they see the same issue, that the country is at a crossroads, that things are at risk, but they have the opposite view, that Trump is is not the problem, but rather the man for the job. And so to to that very point, just very recently, we heard a recording of Senator Lee. I'm sorry to keep bringing him up, but he's he's been very prominent in the news cycle. Um, He compared, first of all, he, he was at a rally and he was trying to address different religious groups, and he said to Protestants and evangelicals, "By the grace of Christ, it, we have Trump here as our president," uh, which was interesting. But then he said to my Mormon LDS friends, he, "You know," he, and then he compared him to Captain Moroni, and you know, the idea being that this is the man for the hour, the man who has the ability to lead us out of this crisis. And I, I'm curious to your uh, to your response to that. What is, when you, I mean, I'm sure you heard of that yourself. What was your response to Senator Lee comparing um, President Trump to Captain Moroni? And I guess I have a second question, which is, I guess, less political and more cultural or perhaps doctrinal as a a Latter-day Saint. Why appeal to Protestants and evangelicals with Jesus and appeal to Mormons with Captain Moroni? Are, Are we not Christians first? Anyway, those were my thoughts. And I'm curious if you have a response to any or all of those things.
0: Yeah, well, excellent questions and observations, Jared. I, you know, I, I, when I saw that yesterday, when I saw that Lee had said that, I, I, I couldn't believe it. And so I, I went and and found the tape and watched it, and, and sure enough, that's what he said. And I've been shocked. I've remained feeling shocked and and disappointed by that, even you know after a good night's rest, which. You know, usually I, I'm able to sleep most things off, but I just think it's uh, really disappointing that Senator Lee would compare Trump to to Captain Moroni. I mean, it's just it couldn't be a a, a less accurate comparison. I mean, you, you just you think about the way Alma talked about Captain Moroni in Alma 48, uh, sixteen seventeen. You know, this was the faith of Mar- Moroni, and his heart did glory in it, not in the shedding of blood but in doing good, in preserving this people, yea, in keeping the commandments of God, and in resisting iniquity. Yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Now, if you replaced Moroni's name with Trump's name and tried to read those verses back, it wouldn't make much sense. And I think even Trump supporters understand that. And I don't know for the life of me, uh, what good reason, uh, uh, Senator Lee would have for making that comparison. And, and rather what I think is happening there is that that was an effort certainly to mislead members of the church using scripture, which I find abhorrent. And, uh, and I think we have to ask ourselves, why is Senator Lee doing these things? And I've, uh, over time, grown very concerned that, you know, Senator Lee is um, finding, um, you know, uh, is seeking too much the the praise of, of President Trump and of, of Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner uh, enjoying too much, uh, you know... Uh, a relationship with them in Washington that I think he believes serves his own personal interests there, and and that's that's not what we Utah's deserve, and I, I think we deserve much better. As far as your point about how why he would appeal to evangelicals and Protestants with a reference to the Savior, but not to members of the church, I mean that's that's strange too. Uh, my view is that it would be better to to just. Uh, if you're going to promote Donald Trump or anything to do with Donald Trump, keep the Savior's name out of it. Um, I just can't imagine uh, why you'd want to sully the Savior's name in any way with a reference, uh, with a comparison, or or anything like it to someone who uh, embodies none. Uh, Yeah, I hate to say this, but none of the values of of the savior as far as I I can see it.
1: I did have one thought how uh, President Trump could be compared to Captain Moroni, and that could be in the shoot from the hip uh, letter to Pahoran when he's frustrated without evidence and, you know, laying it out against other politicos. Um, That's what I think. That's the closest I can get. That's what I can that's, get from right there. The, yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. Angrily yeah. just screaming at other politicians without actually having anything to substantiate what he's saying. That, <laughs> right. uh, Maybe
0: that's it. But even
1: then, I apologized later on.
0: So, <laughs> Indeed.
1: Crazy. Oh, sorry, man. Didn't know about those king men. Oh, it's all right. Yeah. We, got you. <laughs> we got you. So in supporting Joe Biden, I, th- I, I have to imagine there are many conservatives who view you as traitorous in some ways. I mean, we're so it's it's very unfortunate because I know what you're working towards with Stand Up Republic is to get away from tribalism to look for what unites us. But tribalism is is so strong right now, and that's a big effort, and it's great that you're undertaking it. But I think you've received a lot of flack. I mean I follow your uh, your professional page on Facebook and you know you've posted about Joe Biden and you get a I don't hopefully you don't read the comments and you're smarter than that. But you get a lot of flack from that and people don't necessarily seem to want to listen to your arguments. I mean, even with our own faith, like why do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think you're getting so much flack within even our own faith group for supporting someone like Joe Biden?
0: Well, you know, I think it has something to do with the fact that people identify very strongly with their political parties in this country. That's one of the things I learned in 2016. And frankly, even somebody who had been working inside Republican politics, you know, as, as a senior, uh, staff, you know, policy person in, in, in Congress, uh, I was surprised by, by really just how partisan or how tribal, uh, people were, but, and are, but, um, but, you know, We are very tribal when it comes to our political identities in the United States, and we live in a political environment in which both parties have truly successfully demonized the other side. I mean, many Democrats think that all Republicans are racist, and many Republicans think that all Democrats are socialists, and that's the kind of environment we live in. And, And by the way, I think both of those things are dangerous, dangerously untrue. Uh, There are plenty of Republicans who uh, are committed to foundational American values, and actually very, very few Democrats are actual socialists. But we have a two-party system in this country. And as a result of that, the extremes find homes in our respective parties. And our respective parties then use those extremes to vilify everyone who's on the other side. And if you're someone who believes, who buys into that uh, that lie, which is that all Democrats are socialists and all Republicans are racists, then you uh, then you learn to hate the other side and you start believing every negative thing you hear about them. And then at the same time, there's a a, uh, a political partisan ecosystem, media ecosystem, that furthers those um, those misunderstandings. Uh, you've got you know radio show hosts on on the Republican side. And on the Democratic side, but especially on the Republican side these days, that um, that know that in order to hold on to their audience in this in this time in particular, in, in the Trump presidency, uh, where you know many Republicans have left the party and, and other people have, have joined it, but many have left, in order to hold on to their audiences, they've got to make you believe that the other side is even worse. And so they spend. I mean, there, there are I, I could name names. I, I won't. People know who they are. But there are oh,
1: come on, Deep Throat. Come on, name names.
0: <laughs> They're yeah. radios they radio show hosts with a lot of reach inside the LDS community that uh, who have been demonizing, for example, Democrats for years and years and years. There's there's one in particular who, you know, I've been looking at QAnon, the this crazy conspiracy theory that's gaining so much influence in the Republican Party. I've been looking at them a lot recently. And I've seen that there's one very prominent conservative radio show host who has for years been pushing the idea that the Democrats lead some global satanic pedophilia, human trafficking ring, which is crazy. But, you know, that's an idea that is now has been, that's a crazy idea that's been brought to prominence by this QAnon conspiracy theory. But their conservative radio show hosts have been pushing that idea for years and so it's not, it's not a surprise that if someone like me says, look, I think we need to cross party lines and support the Democrat in this election, uh, that a lot of people recoil to that because they've been told for years that the Republicans are satanic uh, child sex traffickers. And, you know, that's, that's a, a crazy, crazy idea. But if that's what you believe, and then somebody comes along and says, all right, in this election, in order to preserve the Republic, we've got to cross party lines and support this unifying Democrat, you know, people recoil to that. And so it's an uphill battle. You know, I do, to answer your question, I do actually uh, sometimes read the, the comments and, and I see how nasty they, they can get. And, and I, I'm sad to say that, you know, some members of our faith are particularly personally, uh, or make particularly personal nasty uh, comments in response to, to things I say. But I I have to say that I just firmly believe that in this moment, our country needs leaders who will say what needs to be said, even when it's unpopular. And so that's, that's what I've committed to doing. Uh, that's what I committed to doing in 2016. And I've stayed committed to that since, and I, and I will remain committed to it, I I hope, because that, that I think is, is what's important. And so, you know, even though there are a lot of people who um, respond quite negatively to some of the things I say, um, I'm going to say what I think needs to be said, what I think is true, and what I think uh, our country needs to hear in order for the Republic to be protected and in order for us to get back on a track towards a more perfect union. And so it may take time for some people, but I hope to persuade them over time that to, to my way of seeing things and and also to remain open myself to, to learning from others as I go. And, you know, there are a lot of people who make actually very good comments that are very insightful. And I, I learn from them and try to use them in my work.
2: Well, along those lines, then, I, so one thing that gets a lot of traction is people talk about politics and the U.S. and especially the church is that, you know, we see not just in Utah, but in the American LDS church in general, there's definitely a lopsided um, political leaning, right? That uh, especially since the uh, T- Taft Benson era, uh, which we've talked about on this show before, um by and large, members of the church identify as very conservative and generally as Republicans. And you have been talking a lot in this podcast uh, and, of course, uh, through your work uh, about reaching across the aisle, about bipartisanship or uh, multipartisanship, et cetera. Um, and, And obviously you identify as a conservative and you are, from what I've been hearing, advocating for a stronger, better in your mind, in your eyes, a better and more principled Republican party. But would you also advocate for I mean what in your mind is their value in having a better balance in the church between the left and the right, between Democrats and Republicans, at least in the U S church. And it's funny when we get in these conversations, we often talk about America as if it were the world when in reality, most of the membership of the church is now outside of the United States. But as far as American politics goes, like, I would, like, do you see, um, would you see more even political representation in the American church as a good thing? Or I I don't know. Give me your take on that.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I guess I would say that in, in a dream, in my dream world, uh, there, as long as we're a two party system, I would like to see two healthy parties that are committed to foundational American values. Okay. I just think that's so critical and I talk about it all the time but everything comes from the values, right? You, your values set your, you know, agenda and your policy solutions and they do everything, but it all begins with the values. And so I think the Republican party has drifted away from foundational American values. And I think parts of the democratic party have as well. Thankfully they haven't succumbed to, to them. It, it, like the Republican party has nominating Donald Trump twice, to two election cycles in a row. But, you know, uh, I want to see two healthy parties and I want to see those healthy parties competing for the votes of members of the church. I don't want I I would prefer to see a great competition between the parties for votes of of members of the church. And and I think in this election cycle, by the way, we see it happening. We've become. Yes, most of the members of the church are live outside of, of the United States of America. Um, But there are still enough in the United States that, and elections, presidential elections are so close that we have the votes actually to impact the outcome of presidential elections and uh, to decide who holds power in Congress. We have the votes. And I would like to see the parties competing for those votes. I don't want to see either party taking our votes for granted. And I think the Republican Party has done that for far too long. And I think that in doing so, it has drifted away from its values, from our values as a country, which is why I think you see many Republican and conservative members of the church uh, deciding that they're going to cross party lines in this presidential election and support Joe Biden. And, and, and I think others did that, you know, supported Democrats in, in the midterms. And so I think this competition has started. You 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 see it especially in in Arizona, where Stand Up Republic has been very active. Um, but you see the the Trump campaign campaigning there. You see the Biden Harris campaign campaigning there, um, speaking specifically to and and about you know members of the church, the interests of of members of the church, and that's a great thing. I would like to see that greater competition because. If we have that competition, I think it makes both parties stronger. I I firmly believe that if if we as members of the church, if we ourselves remain committed to foundational uh, American values, which are consistent with the gospel, if we remain committed to those values, and if both parties are competing for our votes, then we can have the impact of helping both parties remain committed to American values. And that is a great thing for our Republic. And that is, that is what I, I want to see. And, and I do believe that you can find members, uh, you can find uh, leaders in both parties who have embraced, uh, uh, these values that I speak of. And yes, no one is perfect and some have embraced some values and not others. I get that. You know, that's the, that's a human reality. Um, but again, if both parties are competing for the votes of Latter-day Saints and we as Latter-day Saints are committed to liberty and equality and truth and decency and to our system of self-government in general, then our, our, we may save our country. We may save the republic. And, and so that's, that's the power we have. That's the potential we have to do good for our country. And I hope we'll do it. So I want to I build on this just a little bit. If
1: in say we, let's say we succeed in a lot of this, let's say your efforts succeed in sort of rescuing the Republican Party from itself right now to a better Republican Party. If that Republican Party exists and a better Democratic Party exists, do you feel one or the other is more aligned with Latter day Saint values in an ideal situation? In a non-Trump situation, basically, is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. Well, look. I guess I would say this: if both parties are committed to our, our foundational values, uh, then we would have debates, uh, for example, about, um, you know, we we might debate, um, you know, what our budget should be for the military, for example. And and I think that you know I'm somebody who believes that you know, a strong defense is just fundamental to, uh, to government and to our government. And, and we have to have it because, yeah, I've, I've worked overseas. I've seen the people in the countries and the, the, the the terrorist groups, et cetera, who want to destroy us. I believe we have to have a strong defense. So let me just say that. Um, but I think you can be committed to our fundamental, to fundamental American values and have differing views about, what the size of the budget should be for the Department of Defense. And you can have that debate and it can be based on logic and truth, reason. Uh, we can take a look at the threats we face and look at the equipment and the training and the personnel we have and ask ourselves, you know, does all of this measure up in such a way that we can defend ourselves from these threats? Uh, and we can have a logical discussion about what the size of the military budget should be. And both sides can be very committed to our fund, fundamental values, right? And and so that's that's really what I'm talking about. And in a scenario like that, if both parties are committed to our foundational values, uh, then then I think what we have left is a a a a battle of ideas and proposals and 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 a healthy debate about you know how we should solve a problem that doesn't involve. Uh, turning away from our values. And, and in that case, I'm not sure either party exactly has the edge. And so um, it, it just depends on what the policy proposals are and what the ideas are. And um, in that world, uh, I, I think the country is very well served. I don't think we live in that world now, but but I would like to get there. And I don't think one, one party necessarily would have some... Outsized or predominant claim on on the votes of members of the church.
1: Okay, that's fair. Yeah, and I've I've, I've just wondered that you know like ideally, and the brethren of course you know we're politically neutral. Uh, I did think there the letter that went out this year. Every cycle we get the letter that encourages us to be politically active, but it was interesting because the letter does not speak even of platforms. The letter just speaks of electing officials who essentially more or less just have good values. I thought that was very interesting. I don't know if it's always said that. I've been meaning to dig up some of the old ones and see how they've changed over time. But I find it interesting the church, which does get involved in politics, was not even encouraging us to necessarily look at issues directly pertaining to Latter-day Saints or very particular party platforms, but the the values of those candidates and the principles, that's the main word that they use, the principles that they have, not the platform, the principle thought that was
0: interesting. Yeah, that that is interesting and you know we've just been talking about more uh, on the policy side of things but but uh, you know character should be fundamental and 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 you're right we've been counseled to consider the character of those we elect into office. We know that that we should support wise and, and honest leaders into office and you know that that is true
2: on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. One of the letters that I remember, and I think this one was about 10 years ago, 2010 or so, because like you said, Jeff, they do change. They don't, they're not always worded the same, but I remember one stuck out to me because it encouraged everyone to vote and it it reaffirmed that the church, you know, officially doesn't take a position on candidates or policies unless they are a moral issue or viewed as a moral issue. But I remember it used the phrase, you know, encouraged people, members of the church to vote. And to vote according to what they believed, uh, you know, what matched their idea of what was good governance. And I loved that. That I mean, I haven't seen that phrasing since, but that is what I was reminded of as you were talking uh, just now, Evan, just about this idea that, you know, it's not as much if if everyone if both parties are dedicated to founding principles, they're still going to differ on how those principles are enacted, right? This idea of good governance, and so the the idea that members of the church can vote for either party without betraying the church or betraying, you know, any kind of principles, but just based on like, this is how I think government should be run. And like that we can, that's a, that's a debate that we can have and that we can have respectfully. And that is right now, that feels kind of like a pipe dream, but I I do, but I don't think we've lost that. I think it's achievable. So it's been really refreshing that that conversation. Yeah. Well
0: said.
1: So before we go, one thing I, I, I'm also curious about this. We've dabbled in it a little bit. But obviously in 2016, part of your path to victory, however narrow, as you said, um, I believe when we talked to you before, you mentioned part of the idea was to try to essentially, hopefully actually win Utah. And then if there was, if no one cleared the 538, enough fiber, that's a total number of electoral votes. You know what I mean? The 270. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But if no one got enough electoral votes to win, because you would take in Utah's little handful of votes, it would go to the House and things would potentially be different. Um, And like you said, you won 21% of the vote in Utah. Hillary Clinton did better than expected. And Trump, in most situations, this would be great in Utah. He won like 46 or 47%, which is usually fine. But for Utah, that's extremely low for a Republican. Um, And obviously, it's a huge contrast with Mitt Romney, who just, you know, (laughs) it's, it's a little unfair to compare it to Mitt Romney when you have another Mormon running four years prior in Utah of all places. But it seems that Utah has sort of taken on the mold of Trump a bit more like they don't seem to have as much issue with him and we've talked a little bit about this but other than just like you know the tribalism and the uh you know being so scared of the other side like why do you think a Trump presidency has become more palatable to church members in the past 4 years when there were so many who were so very uncomfortable with the idea of it 4 years ago
0: well we'll, we'll let's see what the the numbers indicate uh, you know on on election day i you know i i think that uh, Joe Biden will will do very well in, in Utah, uh, much better than Hillary Clinton did. Uh, I don't think that President Trump, if he breaks fifty percent, it won't be by much. I don't see him breaking fifty five percent, for example, which is still quite low for, for Utah for a Republican presidential candidate. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just not I'm, I'm not I'm not sure yet where we stand as a state, and and the election the election will tell us. I hope that um, I hope that there aren't too many uh, Utahns who have seen Trump's performance over the last four years and and have decided anew that he deserves their their vote. I'm, I'm I hope that's not the case. I mean, we have uh, a country that is suffering uh, from a pandemic, which you know, in which we've lost well over 220,000. American lives, many of them unnecessarily. Uh, Our unemployment rate is 8% in the country. About 23 or 4% of Americans are either unemployed or underemployed. Um, Only 46% of white people over the age of uh, 16 have uh, have jobs that pay over uh, $20,000 a year, and only 40% of black people have jobs that pay over $20,000 a year. Above the age of, of 16. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're really struggling as a country, and, and every president uh, faces challenges. No president or very few presidents get to sail through a four year term without any major challenge. That's why we have to choose leaders who have strong character and who are fit for the job and who put the interests of the American people first. And in this case, we elected somebody who is, has not done those things, and as a result, we're suffering unnecessarily. And, and I've just mentioned some of the challenges. There, of course, are many more. And we're more divided as a country than I think we've been at any time in recent history, uh, in modern history. So I hope that's not the case. I, I think that, that there are people in the state who have been misled about, um, who have been misled about Joe Biden. I think there are people in the state who have been misled to believe that you know all Democrats are socialists. Even though, if the Democrats had had have been, or if the Democrats were under socialist control, they certainly would have wouldn't have nominated Joe Biden. They would have nominated someone else. But I, I think a lot of people are have been misled by some of our leaders and by um, influential right wing radio personalities, and um, that may be why. Uh, they continue to be willing to cast a vote for Donald Trump, but you know I, I hope that um, that many who made that decision in the last cycle will decide in this cycle that that they're just not going to do that. And in fact, here in Utah, I know I know many of them. I mean, I was speaking to a, a woman about a month ago who. Voted for Donald Trump, a mother here in Utah who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 because she had always voted Republican, and that's just what she did once again. Um, but in after seeing four years of his leadership, uh, she's decided to vote for Joe Biden, and she's you know posting support for the equality of of you know, of all, you know, posting support for, for the idea that black lives do matter, for example. And this is a, this is a 2016 Trump voter. So I hope there will be many like that. Um, and less and less people who, who find that the leadership of Donald Trump, uh, or of, uh, men like him, uh, is what our country
2: needs. So maybe one more question, because I think we are getting uh, close to our our hour, which we usually try to keep it to. But uh, I just want to come back to kind of where we started talking about Stand Up Republic. And you, you in the beginning of the show, you spent some time talking about uh, the mission of the organization and some of the things that you guys have done. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about uh, if you have a vision for the future of the organization, like based on what you've done already and what you are doing now, is there... Do you see an expanded role for the organization or anything that you uh, would hope that your organization can, uh, can achieve in the future?
0: Yeah, well, thank you for the question. Uh, one thing is for sure that we are going to continue to build bridges across the partisan divide. We think that that is so critical. We've, we've been able to do that. We've been successful doing that because uh, we've taken the approach of of uh, uniting people around our fundamental principles. Uh, And then we've taken that cross-partisan unity and we've been been able to leverage it to have impact in Congress and in elections around the country. And so we will continue to do that. We'll continue to, to invest more time and resources in building bridges across the partisan divide. And then we'll continue to use that growing community of Americans Republicans, Democrats and independents who are united uh, on the on this on this principles based common ground um, to uh, to promote leaders who are wise and honest and to defeat those who aren't. And so we'll continue to do that. There's going to be a lot of need for that. There are about 20 uh, candidates running around the country who have uh, for for Congress who have either uh, expressed support for the QAnon conspiracy or catered to it. Those are the kinds of candidates who we will seek to defeat in coming cycles. Uh, And then there are other candidates out there who have been very unifying. And, uh, you know, we will work to to help keep them in office. Uh, In addition to that, another big part of what we'll be doing in the future is advancing electoral reforms around the country. Um, Reforms that will help uh, give more choices to voters uh, and and incentivize uh, more unifying and, uh, and effective leadership so for example, you know getting rid of extreme partisan gerrymandering where parties draw district lines so that the other party has no chance of competing that has to end. We want to see more political competition not less because it's better for the people so we'll do that um, we'll also use this cr- this cross partisan community that that we've built and that we're strengthening and building even further to advance political reforms in Washington to, you know, strengthen our institutions uh, so that the separation of powers isn't so vulnerable to a leader who wants to, for example, dismantle them. And so it'll be political reforms in Washington, it'll be electoral reforms at the state level around the country, and it'll be uh, electoral activity supporting Uh, honorable, unifying and effective leaders and defeating those who seek to divide us and introduce extremism from either side into our political leadership.
1: Uh, Would you ever run again for office?
0: Yeah, you know, it's something that I consider all the time and and I think I probably will. Um, It is, um, you know, something that Uh, You know, I don't feel like I I have to do for any personal reason. It's a a lot of work. I know how painful it is, but I I look at our current leadership and in Congress and elsewhere, and I I think that um, we need a a new generation of, of leaders, as I've called for for four years. We need leaders who will reach across the political aisle to get things done for the American people leaders who will speak truth, even when it's really unpopular, even when their own people will criticize them for it. Um, we need leaders who will put the interests of the people first. And and, and I I want to offer that kind of leadership. Um, it, it's something that I feel strongly about. That's why I'm, I work so hard to help others who are offering that kind of leadership. I work to across the, the political aisle to, to help them uh, help them stay in office and defeat those who are are divisive and extremist. Um, But I also, uh, you know, think about um, about running myself again. And I I can't say exactly when it will happen. It could happen very soon um, or perhaps not. But it's it's something that I evaluate on an ongoing basis on a personal level and, and also politically.
1: Well, Mike Lee is up in two years. So, you know, Yes, he is. We're looking for a primary challenge. Fun times. Otherwise, uh, I guess the city of Kaysville is going to get someone on their city council. I actually don't know which city you live in, but Kaysville. I Salt know. Lake City. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you could run in Salt Lake City too. That sounds <laughs> um, Well, this has been great. Evan, thank you so much once again for coming back to the podcast and talking the, uh, this very exciting election cycle with us. It's nice to have learned from your experiences and, uh, and see what you've been up to, and, and we appreciate your insights.
0: Well, it was my pleasure, Jeff, and thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with, with, on with you too, Jared. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope you guys continue the podcast and maybe we can talk again in, in the year ahead.
1: Yeah, we're happy to have you. You're actually our 501st show. So congratulations. You, we've kind of turned a big <laughs> wow. page and you're like, you're like the next chapter.
2: Uh, great. All That's right. right, eleven,
1: And Jared, thank you very much too, buddy.
2: Oh, yeah, of course. I'm, I'm, as always, very happy to be here.
1: All right, folks. Democracy is fragile. So please, those of you in the United States, please take the time to go and vote this election. Let your voice be heard. Take part in the civic process. Uh, Many people have suffered and died uh, for decades, centuries even, to ensure that you have the right to go and cast a ballot. Uh, That's a sacred responsibility uh, for all of us to undertake. But seriously, like we take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. I've lived in places where they don't even have the opportunity to do it freely. So don't take it for granted. That's all. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Always glad that all you guys are here. means the world to us. Uh, Thanks again to Evan. It was a delight to have him on the show. And until we meet again, everybody, be well, be holy, and be happy.